0: Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Today we're going to look at the last two scenes in the, the introduction or the preparation for Jesus' ministry as the Messiah. So what Matthew's been trying to communicate up to the, this point that we've been looking at of uh, the book is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one sent by God to deliver his people and he's looking at these different dimensions or elements of the Messiah's identity that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he's a son of David, he's a second Moses, uh, he's the one that John the Baptist is preparing the way for. He's a faithful and true son of God. And that's what we're gonna focus in on today. And so we're gonna look at Jesus' baptism and his temptation. And we'll look at him at kind of the micro level what's actually what's kind of happening here. But we also want to look at them on a bit of a macro level. What is Matthew trying to communicate about Jesus' identity? And I think it's that he is the true or the faithful son of God. So we'll start reading in chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jericho to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now for it's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. So last week, uh, Russell was, uh, Marshall was talking us through John's ministry. He was in the wilderness. He baptized in, or he came out of the wilderness. He baptized at the Jordan River. So Jews came out to John and they came and were baptized, dunked in the Jordan as a, as a symbol or a sign of repentance. To repent, to repent is to change your mind, which leads to a change of behavior. Maybe a way of thinking about it is to move in a new direction. So these guys are coming out and they're being baptized as a sign of saying, I'm moving in a new direction. I'm, I'm ready for the Messiah, John said, one would come after me who's greater than me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm just baptizing you with water. So they're preparing. It's a, I'm, I'm moving in a new direction. My heart's ready for the Messiah to come, and my heart's ready for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus shows up and says, all right, I want to be baptized with you by, by you, John. And John says, that's, that's not appropriate. I need what you have. You don't need what I have. We don't know what John knew, Matthew doesn't tell us, but there's at least some feeling or sense in him that Jesus may be the Messiah, if not that he is. There's something in Jesus that John says, I, I need to be baptized by you. We had not seen Jesus since he was three, so we don't, he just shows up as an adult here in John chapter three. We had not seen him again since he was a toddler. So we don't know what they were, John and Jesus were related to some degree. We don't know. But John's picking up on something, and it makes him say, this is not appropriate. And Jesus' response, we'll see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this baptism story. The response of the Son is, we need to do this. We need to submit to the will of the Father. That's what we're doing. He doesn't argue with John. He just says, in terms of who's greater or who's lesser, he just says, this is what we need to do to fulfill our righteousness, to, to complete the plan of the Father, to do what the Father requires, you need to baptize me. And then we see the Holy Spirit. As soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, some kind of visible, physical manifestation, Matthew says, like a dove, so maybe it wasn't a dove, we don't know, but something that John could see with his eyes, and that's Jesus being anointed to be the Messiah. We talked several weeks ago that Jesus is divine, but he does what he does, not out of his divinity, but as a... A human who's been filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see here. Jesus being empowered by the Holy Spirit for the work that we're going to begin to see him do beginning in chapter 4. And then we hear the Father as well. This is my beloved son or this is a son whom I love. Two different ways of saying the same thing. With him I'm well pleased. With him I, I take delight. In him I find satisfaction. So here we see Jesus again as this true son of God explicitly stated by the Father. This is my son. We also see him submitting to the plan and the will of the Father by being baptized. It's baptism for repentance, and he'd never sinned. That's one of the reasons I think John's going, you don't, you don't need this. Jesus is identifying with the people. You guys are getting ready for the coming of the kingdom of God, and so am I. And so we're, we're both going to follow the plan of the Father together. Chapter 4. So if you know the story you know what's coming next. If you didn't, this would be a plot twist. You would, I wouldn't see this coming. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So that's not coming off of this high and holy moment at baptism. That's not necessarily the next scene that I, I would be thinking. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, "'If, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread.'" Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It's also written, Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So as Russell said last week, wilderness is not a forest. It's kind of a desert, mountainous desert region. There's a picture behind me. It's called the Mount of Quarantania. That's not what it's called. That's, that's not the right way to say it, but that's my best. And that's where people assume Jesus was tempted. That's where he spent those 40 days. They built a monastery there. That just gives you a picture of the kind of place that he was in. He was there for 40 days and 40 nights and he didn't eat. You've skipped a couple of meals at times, so multiply that times 40 days. He's really hungry. He is divine, but he's also fully human. And so he's the hunger is real. And it's important for us to recognize the temptations are real as well. This is not pretend. This is not make-believe. This is not go through the motions, wink, wink. This, it's hard for us to imagine Jesus, again, fully God, fully human. What does it mean for him to be tempted? It, it means that he was being enticed, lured, into disobedience and rebellion against the Father. This is real. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus suffered in his temptation, that spiritual anguish. Hebrews 4 says he can empathize with us because he's been tempted in every way that we are yet was without sin. One of the ways, the primary way we're tempted is because we're tempted. We can actually sin. If if there's no possibility of Jesus succumbing to temptation, then the temptation is not real. Does that make sense? I I want you to hear this is Again, not, this is not make-believe or checking some box on the Messiah to-do list. This is, this is genuine temptation. Most of you, your native language is English. A couple of you, Portuguese, or some of you, I don't know. I want you to think about how fluent you are in your native tongue. How easily you communicate. You don't even think about it. Reading, listening, talking. Talking think how big your vocabulary is. If you wanted to explain something to me that you knew really well and I didn't know all the tools at your disposal, you could use technical language, you could use personal stories, you could use figurative language, similes and metaphors and analogies. It's, it, you, don't even, you don't think about communicating. You're fluent. Jesus says when the devil lies, he's speaking his native language. He's as fluent in deception as you are in English. Think about this. When he falls, according to the book of Revelation, a third of the angels come with him. So you think about how persuasive he is. Beings, angels, who are literally in the presence of God say, I want what you have instead of this. It's no joke. Adam and Eve in perfection, everything exactly as God intends it to be. And the devil is able to lead them into rebellion. I'm not trying to scare anyone. I, I want us to see he is fluent in the art of deceiving us. There is no pitchfork and red pointy tail. He, is a, he masquerades as an angel of light. He's not just fluent at deception. He has thousands of years of practice at getting people like you and me to distrust the Father and to follow him. These temptations are real, and the person who is tempting Jesus is no joke. I just want, I, I just want us to have that picture and that framework in mind, the, the, the devil is not, he's not questioning Jesus's identity. We hear, if you're the son of God and we think, well, he's trying to get Jesus to doubt that he is in fact God's son. The father just spoke, this is my beloved son. And the devil's trying to shake that. That's actually not what's going on. He's trying to get Jesus to become or be a different kind of son. It would be like, maybe "sense" is a better word, since you are the son of God, do these things. He's trying to get Jesus to abuse his power and his position as the son of God. He's not questioning whether he is. The question is, what kind of son are you going to be? So since you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. He's hungry. If the devil showed up in my room tonight and said, turn these stones into bread, I will tell you how much of a temptation that is for me. Zero percent. I have, there's not one bit of me that thinks I can turn a rock into a something I can eat. That's not a temptation for me. Jesus could do that. We see him turn five loaves of fish and or excuse me, five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food for twelve to fifteen thousand people. It's a legit temptation for him. And he's really hungry. And in that moment, what he, he all of his quotes from the Old Testament are from Deuteronomy, and he's saying, referring back to the Father providing manna for the people. No, I'm going to trust the Father. That's what he's saying. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You remember the setup for the manna? So every morning, the people went out and they gathered this stuff that had appeared on the ground like dew, and you could get enough for one day for your household. If you gathered two days' worth, the the extra rotted. So on Monday, if you got enough for Monday and Tuesday, when you woke up on Tuesday, that stuff was rotted. The only exception was on Friday. On Friday, you could get enough for Friday and Saturday, because Saturday was a Sabbath, so there was no manna on the ground, and you couldn't collected anyway, because that would be work. So that's the way the Israelites lived every day of every week of every month for 40 years. They learned daily dependence upon God. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to trust the father. He'll feed me when it's time and he'll feed me in the way that he wants. I'm not going to abuse the power that I do have as the son of God. Yeah, I could turn those stones into bread, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust the Father to take care of me instead of taking care of myself. I'm not tempted to turn rocks into bread, but I'm certainly tempted to use my strengths, my talents, my abilities to meet my own needs. And maybe you are also. Satan takes Jesus up on the high point of the temple and says, jump off. According to Psalms, that if you jump, the, God's going to send angels and they're going to protect you, keep you from falling. Again, God takes me, or the devil takes me to the top of Kennestone and says, jump off. I'm not doing it. That's not a temptation for me. Zero confidence that some angel is going to keep me from splatting on the ground. I don't think that. Jesus, when he's arrested, says, listen, I could ask my father, and he'd send 12 legions of angels to take care of me right now. That's a legit temptation for him. It's the temptation to manipulate God, and that is something that we wrestle with. You ever made a bargain with God? God, if you'll do blank, then I'll do blank. That's manipulation. Sometimes we do that, God. We, we try to do that with our obedience or our spirituality. I'm going to give this much or pray this much or fast this much. or I'm going to, these, these things that I'm doing to try to leverage you, God, to give me what I want. We're treating him like a vending machine and not like a father. Jesus says I'm not doing that. The Bible also says don't put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to test him. I'm going to trust him. And then this last temptation, which is it's Satan, it's it's kind of the most bald and bold of them. I'll give you all of this, all these kingdoms. I'll give them to you if you'll worship me. Psalm 2, 6 through 8, it's a messianic psalm. The father is saying to the Messiah, you're my son and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. So what the devil is saying is what your father is promising to give you, I can give you and I'll give it to you now. Whatever's in front of you in terms of being the Messiah You don't have to walk that road. Here's a shortcut. Whatever this is going to look like for you to take on being a man, imagine that, God to man, all that that means. Maybe the cross is in mind. We don't know at this point if Jesus knew the cross was in front of him. That, you can avoid all of that and still get the payoff if you'll just bow down and worship me. And that's the heart of everything the enemy's trying to do. We think, well, the enemy's trying to get us to do bad things. That's superficial. What he's trying to get us to do is to, he's he's attacking our trust in the Father. You can't trust that guy. His plans for you are not good. You can't trust that his ways are ultimately going to be what's best. Here's a shortcut. You can get what he's offering without having to do it his way. We're tempted to do the same thing. And again, I want us to all recognize, this is not to scare anybody. He is really good at lying. That's what he's doing to all of us. He's lying to us and trying to get us to take the bait. And the lies are 90-something percent true. You're not falling for something that's completely false. You know the Lord too well. You know the Bible too well. It's 90-plus percent True, it's just twisted a little bit. You can justify and you can rationalize and I can do those same things. When you start walking down that road, that probably means you're believing something that's a lie. Macro level, Jesus is the true son of God. That word tempt can also be translated test. So to tempt is to entice or to lure someone to do Evil, that's the work of the devil. It's to get us to rebel or to disobey. To test is to determine the quality. In the New Testament, it's almost always the quality of our faith. The quality and the genuineness of our faith, and that's the work of God. You see, it's the same word, but in one case, it's God doing the testing, and in one case, it's the devil doing the tempting. And I think we can look at this time in the wilderness through both of those angles. When you think about tempting, you go back to Genesis 3. And Jesus standing in the place of Adam and Eve. Romans 5, 12 through 20 talks about Jesus as the second Adam. Everything that was lost when Adam and Eve fell, Jesus restored. Adam's sin leads to death for the world and Jesus' obedience leads to life for the world. At least a possibility of life for the world. We see in the wilderness, in some ways, Jesus, he's standing in the same place that Adam and Eve were in the garden and you see parallels and points of contact between the temptations here's this apple and it's good for food and Jesus is starving and here feed feed yourself it's this appeal to our our bodies whether you want to call those our needs or, or our desires you see the twisting of god's word did god really say that's what the enemy says to eve did god really say that and what he says to jesus is you can jump from this temple because here i'm going to quote a passage from From Psalms to you. Twisting of the word. And then ultimately, it's an attack on the character of God. You can't trust him. What the devil says to Eve is, you're not going to die. If you eat this fruit, you're going to be like God. And the irony of that statement is she's already like God. She was created in his image. If you eat this, you'll be like him. Subtext, he doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want what's best for you. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. It's the same temptation. You can't trust that guy. You can't trust that father in heaven. I'll give you what you want right now. Right now. It's the heart of what the enemy is offering all of us. You can't trust him. Let me give you what you want right now. Jesus stands firm where Adam falls. He's the true son, the faithful son of God. If you look at that scene in the wilderness through the lens of testing, so not luring to evil, but determining the quality or the genuineness of faith, Jesus' time, for his 40 days in the wilderness parallel Israel's 40 years in the wilderness and every place where Israel grumbled and then ultimately fall into or choose idolatry they don't fall into it Jesus proves himself faithful he trusts the lord so there's this word in the old testament it's translated grumble or grumbling it occurs 24 times or 25 times and 24 of them are in uh, Exodus and Numbers and they are always are Uh, Describing Israel's response to God during their time in the wilderness. When we hear grumble, we're like, that's not a big deal. I've grumbled seven times today. I grumbled when my alarm clock went off. I grumbled, like, when I couldn't find a parking place, whatever. Like, that's just kind of, that's not a big thing for us. You see the full definition there behind me. When that word is attached to the Israelites in Exodus and Numbers, it's a massive word because it's a reflection. It's an outward expression of an inward rebellion and stubbornness. It's a devastating word. When Israel grumbles against God, what they're saying is, we don't trust you and we don't trust your plan. We're going to do our own thing. And it's Exodus 16, I think, where you have the story of manna. The reason... God is sending this man. He says, I'm gonna test you guys. Are you actually gonna trust me to provide for your needs every day? And the Israelites grumble. In Exodus 17, there's no water. They're in the wilderness. And Moses brings God through Moses. There's water from a rock. And Moses says, we're gonna call this place Masa because you've tested God. You grumbled. You didn't trust him to provide water for you. And those places where they test God and where they try to meet their own needs, Jesus is faithful. He shows himself to be a true and faithful son of God. And then in Exodus 32, you have the the worst of all of it. Moses is gone for 40 days, and apparently that's too long. We don't know how many days they decide maybe Moses is not coming back. So they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and say, Hey, we don't know about this Moses fellow. Will you make us some gods? And Aaron says, Okay. And so he gets gold jewelry from everybody and melts it and makes a calf and... It says, these, guy, th- these are the gods that led you out of Egypt. And they start to worship them. The turnaround is amazingly fast. Satan, bow down and worship me. Jesus is faithful in every place that Israel is not. He's a true and faithful son of God. So for us, there's tons of things that you could take from these two stories. Just a couple of things I want you thinking about. One from Jesus' baptism, identity. It's a big thing for a lot of us. Who are we and what is it? We talk about our identity in Christ. A couple of things off of that. One, our identity, we see this from G, this statement from the Father to the Son, it's, it's fundamental or, or fundamentally it's tied to our relationship with the Father. So it's not this is the Messiah, it's not, this is the king of kings and lord of lords. Both those are true statements. It's not, this is the savior of the world. That's a true statement. This is my beloved son. That's a relational statement. Y'all wear tons of hats. You got lots of roles, lots of responsibilities. Most of them are great. They're not fundamental. We peel all that stuff away. What's at the core, what's at the bottom is son or daughter of God. That's the thing that's the most true about us because It's eternal. Those other things come and go. If nothing else, they at death, they're gone. But this relationship with God is eternal, and that makes it the most important and most fundamental, the most central to who we are. You, you know that. It's hard to live that way where we are. That's not necessarily the way we relate to other people or other people relate to us. Don't forget that. Second thing, identity precedes activity. So Jesus hasn't preached a sermon, taught a parable, healed a sick person, called a disciple. and' not done any of that. And the father says, I take great delight in this guy. I find satisfaction in him. Before your feet hit the floor in the morning, the father would say the same thing about you. I take delight in you. I find satisfaction in you. Obedience, he does delight in that. This is before that. We do what we do because of who we are. and God's delight in us, it's based on that relationship, on His view of us. It's not based on what we do for Him. You know both of those things. They're really hard to walk out day in and day out. In the wilderness, we see how we stand up to temptation Again, not to scare anybody, but you and me, we're being tempted. That's what he does. And he's, again, the, the, the heart of the temptations are the same. It's not get us to do bad things. The bad things, all that ultimately, is just, it's a reflection of a lack of trust. And that's what, that's what he's trying to get us to do. Hey, come, come with me. It's what he did to Adam and Eve. It's what he did to a third of the angels. It's what he tried to do to Jesus. Follow me. I got a better option for you. You can't trust that guy in heaven. You've never even seen him. He's letting you suffer. He hadn't fixed it yet. That road's too hard. If he really loved you, he wouldn't ask you to fill in the blank. Come my way. Jesus shows us the example. Here's the template. You submit to God. This is James 4, 7. To submit is to align yourself under the authority of another person. God, I agree with you about this. I think the biggest step we can take in terms of, maybe not the biggest. It's a great initial step in terms of withstanding temptation is to acknowledge that you're tempted. The reason it's a temptation is because you're tempted. And so saying that to the Lord is super helpful. This apple looks really good, God. I would like to eat it. Bring him in. Bring him in. Temptation is not a sin. Bring him in. God, I, I want what he's selling right now. That way looks better. If nothing else, it looks easier. And I need you to strengthen me. I want to submit. I want to align myself with you. But there's this big part of me that doesn't. Bring him in. Sometimes just telling somebody else, you don't have to do this all the time, but sometimes just telling somebody else will break the power of the temptation. Kind of like a spell. And when you say to somebody, hey, I'm really tempted to do this, it loses some of its power. But certainly we want to bring God into that. Submit to him. Resist the devil. That just means to stand in opposition to. I, I'm, not get, I'm, not, I'm not following you down that road. Jesus quotes scripture back. That's one of the reasons that we're meditating on these passages. One passage a month. We want some things written on our hearts so that we're, when we're in a point of decision or when we're in even some type of a crisis, there's something we can draw on. There's something in here that we can say, no, this is, I actually know that this is true. And even if everything around me is screaming that it's not, that's one of the things the devil roars like a lion and the Holy Spirit whispers to us. And sometimes that whisper is hard to hear with all the roaring. We want to know some truth and have that written on our hearts so that in those moments when we most need it, we've got something we can stand on. We don't have to have the whole Bible memorized. We want to know something about the heart of our Father. Because that's ultimately what the enemy's trying to do. Trust me and not him. Follow me and not him. Bow down to me and not him. Worship me and not him. Don't think of worship about singing songs. That's an element. What he's looking for is allegiance. Just trust me. Don't trust him. Re- s- submit to the Lord, resist the devil, and then he'll flee. Those things are are somewhat, particularly towards the devil, that's somewhat passive. Resist. Or there are other places looking at that the other way. Paul says, stand firm. Just stand firm. Stand firm on the things that you know to be true. We've talked about this before. If I'm standing firm, I'm just staying here. The way I lose, if this is if I take this, that I just lost. All I got to do is nothing. Just stand on the truth of, of who I am in the Lord. I'm, I'm his beloved and he's well pleased with me. Stand firm on the truth that he's a good father and he desires good things for me even if I'm not experiencing those things in the way that I think I should. Stand firm in the truth that Jesus is the king and the Lord, that he's coming back and he's going to make everything right. Stand firm. Stand firm. Just don't do this. And I'm moving in the wrong direction. We're going to take communion. I, I want to encourage you as we do. So communion is a, it's a means of grace. So that's a fancy theological phrase. So this is not fancy or theological. God has got a pipe and he's attaching it to your heart. And that's communion. And he's going to send grace through that pipe to you. What do you most need this morning? If you take communion in faith, if it's just rote, then you're just eating wet bread. But if, it's some, if you're doing it in faith, then God wants to, He wants to send to you the grace that you most need. Some of you, what you need most is to be reminded that you're his beloved and that he's pleased with you. You need to know that. And don't think the fact that you need to know that means like somehow you haven't gotten past elementary Christianity. This is constantly being attacked. And so for some of you, that's the thing you most need. And as you come forward and take communion in faith, I want you to say, God, would you remind me that you've adopted me into your family, that I'm your son or that I'm your daughter, and that you're pleased with me. For some of you, you're in a battle right now. And what you need is strength. You need strength to submit to God and to stand firm. And I'm not making light of that. And so as you're coming forward, you need to say, God, that apple looks really good. It looks really good. I'm I'm tempted. The, The way that he's leading me looks a whole lot better than the way you're leading me. And I need grace to submit to you and to stand firm. I want to stand on the things that I know to be true, even if I'm not currently seeing those things play out in my life. And that takes a lot of grace. I need grace to do that. Some of you have another need in your life. And as you come forward, again, in faith, God, this is, this is what I need. This is what I need from you this morning. And we want to trust that the Lord will meet that need. If you're helping with communion, if you come forward. So the way you guys will take communion, you'll come forward a row at a time, break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. There's gluten-free communion here. There are, just be a little mindful. There are rugs up here. We don't want anybody to trip when you're moving forward. And We'll also have ministry teams here in the corners. And we'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. But I would, both of these things, if what you need is to hear that your identity, just tell these guys and they'll tell you. They will remind you of what you know to be true. You'll hear it from their lips and we'll trust that it's God speaking through them. You may need to be strengthened, and you can just say, hey, I'm tempted. And if you want to even say, in this area, this is a struggle for me. They're not going to judge you, and they're not going to try to counsel you. They're just going to pray that God would strengthen you. You may have something else going on, and we'd love to pray with you about that as well. So if you guys, um, why don't you all go ahead and stand and just, uh, if you're willing, pray something like this in your heart. Holy Spirit, I want to open up my heart right now. Would you help me to do that? Jesus, thank you for your death and your resurrection, and I'm grateful for all of the benefits that flow into my life because of your obedience. Father, I thank you for sending the Son. And now I want to receive from you the grace that I need in this area. And you can fill in that blank. In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week.